From FasterMind.co, this is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about that space, that tension between the stuff you make and making money or something valuable from your stuff. The show lives where creativity and business collide, giving all of us the opportunity to rethink how we work and live in the digital economy. The story of an unlikely creative becoming a creative in the process of creating is as old as time. And our guest today is very much in that school of learning. Kate Merrick began writing in the midst of a really challenging season. She and her husband and family were going through a significant process where their young, young daughter was very sick. And over time, things went high and low and high and low and then very, very low, and their daughter Daisy died. Well, as you might imagine, any mom who loses a baby a young girl would, of course, grieve fiercely, grieve in a way that did not need to be public. And yet she discovered something both in the process of becoming a writer and now years later, as she's publishing her story about what happened, has really opened up a window for a lot of other people to not only connect to and relate to their story, but to hear kind of a surprise ending, an ending that you would not have anticipated. So as you hear a little bit of Kate's sharing today, I'd encourage you to hear her story, hear what went on, but also consider your own. Where have you discovered your creativity? And what do you do when things go dark? And could it be that the creativity continues? If only you'll listen. If only you'll come out when you're ready. And if only you'll be brave enough to put it on display. Kate Merrick, welcome to Converge. Thank you so much for having me. My new friend, it's odd to say I'm excited to talk to you, uh, but I am actually very excited to talk to you about your new book, uh, And Still She Laughs, Defiant Joy in the Depths of Suffering. And I'm going to just let the audience know up front, you just need to trust this one, that we're going to be in a conversation that's the kind of thing that isn't just about creating or isn't just about business, isn't, it isn't even about kind of what you would normally anticipate coming from this this podcast. But what it is, is a fundamentally human conversation, something very real that is not, there's no, it's real and live, like it's in the moment right now. But my friend Kate has a pretty amazing story, and I'll let her share most of it. The quick cliff notes in advance to where we're at today are that she and her husband, Britt, are pastors. They run a church uh, that started up in Carpinteria, near to where I actually taught college. I taught at a liberal arts school up in Santa Barbara called Westmont College. And while I was there, actually, uh, quite a few years ago, uh, they started this this pretty amazing faith community that has now since gone on to become quite a tribe of communities all over the world, from San Francisco to LA to London. And before that, uh, Britt's dad is kind of a famous fella. His name's Al Merrick. He started Channel Island Surfboards. And for those of you guys, if you don't know surfboard brands, you do know the name Kelly Slater. And I have a hunch you've you've heard of that world. So imagine Southern California, Santa Barbara, though, which is even cooler than Southern California, kind of a surf culture and really bohemian, uh, like these people fit the mold and they had this idyllic life where they start this amazing faith community. And it's right in the middle of this world that your daughter, Daisy, got really sick. Mm -hmm. Why don't you share just kind of let you tell that part of the story. And then I have a question after you tell what got you from that moment to the, the book being written. Okay, sounds good. 
Um, yeah. So in 2009, my son, Isaiah, was a third grader and my daughter, Daisy, was a kindergartner. And it was a Monday morning. I think it was the third Monday in September. And so I was so excited to go surfing with my husband. <laughs> Having been a stay-at-home mom all those years into leading up to that time, it had been really all about the kids. And so Mondays were so exciting because the pastor's day off, we get to go surfing. And finally, both my kids were in school. And so we drop our kids off at school. And we head down the coast and we stop by the Channel Islands factory, which we went in to try a few new models to get out in the water. And we just kind of were lingering a long time, usually more than more than you usually linger. And we get back in the car, we get a phone call. And my friend who works at the school said, Daisy fell down and she's hurt pretty bad and you need to come and get her. So we drove back up the coast, went to pick my daughter up, and she was kind of in and out of consciousness, and she was vomiting, and she was in a whole lot of pain. So we took her into the ER, and it was a long day, but by the end of the day, she had a cancer diagnosis. So it was kind of the beginning of just an abrupt change in my world. So we spent that week, actually, we spent the, the next two weeks in the hospital. She had to be on morphine for the next three days just to survive the pain because there was a tumor in her abdomen and it had burst and it was just basically spreading cancer cells all over her body. And, and so she had to stay on morphine just to survive. And three days into it, we could finally open her up and got the tumor out and started into the next eight months of chemotherapy, radiation, and the whole cancer world. So we went from, you know, idyllic, perfect <laughs> surfing together on a Monday to mm. stuck in the hospital and, and just heartbroken mm. and tons and tons of pain. And so my precious girl fought that battle for the next eight months. She was cancer free for about a month, maybe six weeks landed back in the hospital with pain so that cancer just kept coming back, kept coming back for three and a half years. It kept coming back. And toward the end, actually, after three years of that, there was nothing else they could do for her here in America. And so we started asking around, just putting out all the feelers we could possibly find and came up with, there was a place in Israel um, in Tel Aviv, Israel, there's a doctor there who's just a genius, and he's doing all this experimental stuff. And so we moved our family to Israel, just kind of as a just a last effort. And we lived there and did experimental treatment on her. And then, as it went every single time, we get home about a month later, she got her fourth diagnosis, which is basically the death blow. Mm. So, in February of 2013, my daughter left us and went to heaven in my arms in the night in our room. And that was just, I don't even know where the suffer. I mean, the suffering began that Monday, that third Monday mm. in September, you know, that's where the suffering mm. began, but a whole different kind of suffering began in February of 2013 mm. for us. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, there's so much packed into each of those those moments, the, the moment of hearing, the eight-month run, the one-month run, the three-and-a-half-year run, just upheaval with your family in the midst of all of that. And I, I'm just going to set the, those pieces aside just because there's so much that was so personal for you in the midst of all of that. But what I'm struck by is during that season, you were 
public facing. Like there was a lot of people. You and I weren't friends yet, but I mm-hmm. knew about the Merricks. I'd read about Daisy, and there was um, a pretty famous website that had global attention, um, especially in the faith community, but certainly beyond that. And talk a little bit about your process of writing about your journey in the midst of like when it was happening, not looking back, but like what what were you thinking, experiencing, feeling as you were creatively outputting okay. your, your, your life in that season? You know, it's funny how that started. We're a really low tech family. Like we live on a ranch, a small ranch, but we do. We live on a ranch. We don't have internet. We don't have Wi-Fi. We don't have TV. We never have. <laughs> and I'm the only one in the family with a smartphone. <laughs> so we're kind of low tech. And I didn't even really know what a blog was. But we had to start one because everyone asks you what's going on, what's going on. And you don't want to explain 500 times. Yeah, of course. You know, and so really it was it was started by some friends of ours just to keep everyone abreast of what was happening with Daisy. And they took care of it for a while, and they're the ones that posted in the beginning. And then Britt started posting, and then one day we were sitting in the hospital together, and I noticed that he did a post. And so I said, what did you post? And I read what he had written, and it was so boring, and it was so (laughs) depressing. (laughs) And I was like, this is total crap. What did you just write? And I didn't know that you could take a post down. I thought you had to add another one to scoot the other post up. Okay, this is how nothing I knew and still really don't know much at all. And so I said, give me that computer. And so I took it from him and I started to write and it it turned out it was totally my thing. (laughs) Amazing. What a great start of a writing career. (laughs) Yes, that is the beginning of my writing career. And it's funny because... I would say 95% of what I wrote on that blog, I wrote either with one eye open, head still on the pillow, literally, I would just grab my phone and type it all with my thumbs, head still on the pillow. Or, I hope this isn't completely inappropriate, but- Not at all. On the throne, okay, the porcelain. (laughs) (laughs) Legs numb. I know that world. That's great. I'm like, oh, sweet. I got a few minutes. I'm just going to throw out a post real quick. (laughs) And then I didn't even know how to do it. So I would just send it off to my friend who was the one running the whole blog for me. So yeah, it was, it turned into like a thing. It was like, oh, I kind of have a knack for this. And and I think this is really cathartic and, and it's actually a, a good place for me to kind of work out my feelings and figure out mm. what's like swirling all around in my head. So I did. I blogged and kept everyone abreast and, and enjoyed being a little bit creative just in the middle of the mm-hmm. heartbrokenness of the whole thing. And then, you know, I never look back because it's really, really painful for me. But I mm-hmm. think I post the last time I posted was maybe the day after she died and then it just was like a book that slammed shut just black i just went dark yeah well yeah what i remember about as a, as a reader as someone who was just following along and and part of a, a community of folks praying that just wanted wanted so much so like a hanging on kind of what was going on it seemed like what i'm hearing you describe is in that season before that season came to an end you're right. Like you were discovering, it sounds like you were kind of figuring out you in the midst of, of what you were experiencing. And it had this ancillary kind of invitational benefit where it like a whole community of people around the world began to pay attention. 
is that a fair way to characterize it? I'm, I'm guessing it. There were, I mean, I know there was a lot of people that cared about your circumstances. It's funny because it just turned out to be such a gift, just knowing that it's true. People all around the world. We were hiking when we were in Israel. We were hiking through a place called En Gedi, which is down near the Dead Sea. We're walking and we hear a voice with an accent say, is that Daisy Love? And I turn around. She's on my back. I turn around and she looks at me and says, are you Daisy's mom? And I'm looking at this woman. I think she was German or something. She was like mm. not even from Israel. And she had been following our journey and praying for us. And it was just blew me away. So we would meet these people all over the place, you know, who knew, who knew her and and loved her. And I just couldn't believe what a gift that was, because I know that every day kids die in obscurity. Every single day, there's a kid who no one else knows and only their mom and dad know their quirks and what their favorite ice cream was and what they like Mm. to play. Mm. But I had the gift of hundreds of thousands of people knowing her. So yeah, that was huge for me. It was huge for me. And then it was interesting because the whole time I'm writing, like there's these thoughts swirling around that I'm kind of not even aware of until I get them out through my fingers, you know, onto onto the screen. And it was just so... It almost turned into its own living creature. It was like this organism, you know, not just the blog, but just just mm-hmm. the whole idea of, hey, this is this is how you're learning through this thing, kind of as you go, learning about how to process this pain and how to walk through this suffering and, and kind of figuring it out from, it helped me kind of to take a step back and look at the situation kind of with like a broader perspective. It helped me make sense of it. It really did. It was amazing. I love that it had these kind of surprises, like writing as a vehicle for you. It had these surprising elements that that were part of it, even in the midst of radical mm-hmm. ups and downs, and then ultimately the mm-hmm. darkest of days. And then, and then you went black. You disappeared. I did. I disappeared. <laughs> and I'm curious, like now it's how many years since? Uh, four years. And I hold in my hands. A book. It tells me that something, the darkness feels different now. And I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about what those, it's not about the blog per se, but what happened in the dark days? And then what led to you telling this story of defiant joy in the depths of suffering? Talk a little bit about that. Okay. So um, going, going dark was just kind of the next step in what needed to happen. I just realized I'm not going to process publicly anymore. I don't have to, I don't have to keep anyone, you know, abreast of what's going on anymore because we all know, well, she's in heaven. There was that it was, well, that part's over. And so I, I was yearning for privacy. It was, it was actually, you know, kind of hard having everyone know everything about mm-hmm. your life mm-hmm. all the time yeah. and knowing your next move and what's going on. And I mean, it's a gift, but then enough is enough. And so I really just needed some privacy and I just needed to, to grieve. I needed to lament. I needed to cry and have questions and do it all without feeling like I needed to write it down and hit publish and have however many people read it and wonder. I just wanted to be alone in that. And so I did. For a couple of years, I didn't do anything. I didn't do any writing. I didn't do any speaking. I just said no to everything. I just, I just needed to sit with it. 
I just needed to sit with it. And in the Bible, um, there's a man named Job who lost everything. He lost 10 kids. He lost all of his wealth and he lost um, his health. He was just, he was sick and he lost everything and he just sat in ashes. And that's how I felt like I just, I just need to sit in ashes. I just need to sit in ashes. I mean, my daughter is gone. I need to figure out what on earth just happened. And, you know, it's like I had so much hope up until the last second. I really did. I had so much hope. So, yeah, I just kind of had to figure that out. So the silence lasted for a couple of years for me. And then I I started kind of to tiptoe back out into the speaking world. And and it's so it's so crazy because I got invited to speak at this church and I hadn't done any until then. And I just felt this nudge. I, I just felt God telling me, take this one. I have something to tell you. Take this one. And so I said, yes. And they said, you get cho- your choice of the verse. Our passage is in Proverbs. And the passage goes like this. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs without fear of the future. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And I just really felt God say, she laughs without fear of the future. That's what you're going to teach on. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? I, dude, I'm not laughing. And I've got some serious fear. <laughs> mm-hmm. And God's like, no, this one's for you. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started. I just sat with my Bible open. I just sat in prayer. And just the thoughts started coming. And following months, they just it just kept building and building and building. And then all of a sudden, what I had started and used for my my speaking engagement, I took I took that and just kept going, and it turned into twelve chapters. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like, hey, this is what you used to do, but it wasn't real time. And I remember telling my agent, he said, "You should blog again." And I remember saying, "No way, man! Mm-hmm. Then you're in real time, practically, and people can look inside your head and look inside your heart and see what's in there." And I just want to keep it quiet for a while. And I just want to be okay with not being okay. And then I don't want to stay that way either. So just give me some time. And so it was just so freeing to be able to write, but not have to hit publish. Mm. And so I wrote 12 chapters and sent it off to my agent. And he said, well, (laughs) what would you like to do with this? And I said, well, I don't know. Let's see if anyone wants it. (laughs) So now you're holding it in your hand. Wow. Everything you're saying makes total sense to me. Like you, you're right. You didn't have to be public, and you didn't have to pursue this. That one talk, it makes sense to me that you felt it sounds very kind of generous on your part to present the narrative from that angle around. And still, she laughs, and the inspiration makes sense to me. And and even the cathartic exercise of getting it out into twelve chapters. But why share it? Like, why not keep it just for you? I am so grateful for authors who have taken a chance and just gone risky and have shared their stories. So I feel like I want to inspire others. Everyone suffers on some level. I mean, none of us gets out of here unscathed. Honestly, I've I've read so many books that were so helpful to me, and I'm so grateful. You know, like the person who leaves the Amazon review on the, you know— the cooler you're trying to buy. And you're like, thank you for doing that. Uh-huh. That's helping my choice. <laughs> I mean, that's like the silliest, that's the silliest um, example. But I'm just grateful that other people have gone before me and done it. So that's why I chose to do it. Yeah, that's the main reason that I chose to do it. I, I would really be, I, I feel like I've done my job 
if someone can read it and say, wow, okay, okay, I see what you're saying. I've had a tough road to hoe too. Mm. And thank you. This is encouraging me. This has inspired me to laugh again after, you know, severe sorrow. Mm. So yeah, as an inspiration, that's why I did it. Mm. I had a mentor a long time ago say to me that his goal in life was to be honest and Christian at the same time uh, for his whole life and to be okay. existentially honest and, and still hold on to what he believed to be true to somehow make sense out of what is true, even in the midst of it. And one thing that as you and I have, have just be kind of begun a friendship and we have common friends and we have contacts, but I, what strikes me about you and your husband, you seem radically committed to honesty and to Christianity and in the process of, especially those dark years leading to now, can you talk a little bit about grief and sorrow and how you were honest with it and how that changed over those, uh, if it changed, I don't know if it did, but uh, that's the invitation to be honest about the process of going from dark to light. Hmm. I don't believe anyone is helped when or if people are putting on a front. Hmm. I really don't. It's funny because having grown up in and out of the church, you know, when you're a kid and you read these Bible stories, you look in any kid's Bible and you're reading books about Noah and the ark and you're seeing animals, but then you like grow up and you realize, wait, hold on a second. This story is about the great wickedness of the whole wide world. And everyone is so wicked that God's punishing the whole wide world. And there's only eight people who make it through. It's mm. actually a horrifying story. Mm. And then, so you kind of like, you grow up and you realize, wait a minute, there's a lot of really radical things that people have, have done and experienced and dealt with all throughout history. And thankfully, they're recorded. Mm. They're recorded for us to see and and to read and to know. Because if we're not honest with each other and with ourselves, you, you have absolutely nothing. Mm. I mean, you have absolutely nothing. If I was going to go around and say, oh, hey, God is good all the time. It's totally okay that my kid died. Mm. I don't see who that helps, mm. you know, that's complete dishonesty. That's and right. I have questions, I have sorrow, and I'm pretty sure God's okay with that. Mm. I don't think that he's saying, no, you need to, you need to act this way, act that way. Mm. That's not what I read in the Bible. I read a lot of honesty. I, I read of a lot of mistakes being made. I've made a million mistakes. We're all just practicing. <laughs> I have this, when my son went into kindergarten, he had this sweet, sweet teacher who was like a hundred years old. And she would, she would say, you know, the kids get really upset about how they can't write their letters correctly. And I would say, it's okay. You're just practicing. And I thought, that is the best phrase ever. I use it all the time. We are just practicing. We don't have to have it down perfect. And I don't even know what that means. And so if we're not honest about life, then no one's getting helped. It's all, mm. it's all fake. Mm. And so, yeah. Well, that's refreshing and an invitation. So in the process of telling the story, honestly, talk about bitterness, because I know we've talked offline a little bit about this, but the transformation from bitterness and what, what went on for you, what did it turn into? I didn't really realize that I was bitter for probably a couple of years after Daisy died. And it's funny because God kind of showed me through a woman in the Bible named Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And so 
he had shown me that she was bitter. And she's in the tent. And in the book of Genesis, she's in this tent. She's promised a baby. 24 years goes by. She never gets the baby she's promised. And these men come up to her tent and they prophesy and they say, you're going to have this baby within one year. Well, Sarah is eavesdropping and, and she laughs bitterly in her heart. She says, I'm a worn out woman. How could I have pleasure in my old age? Yeah, right. And when I was reading those verses, I really felt like God telling me, you're like Sarah, you're bitter. And I realized I felt bitter. I felt like, how could I ever have joy again? Daisy's gone. And that was kind of the beginning was, you know what they say, like acceptance you have to, or, or acknowledgement. I don't know in the stages of it was realizing, whoa, I'm bitter. And I realized that I was covering up my bitterness with humor. I love humor. I love to laugh in all my laughter over, you know, those two years were just, it was always bitter. I'd never, I did not believe that there could ever be anything good in my life ever again. I just was kind of a yucky person for a while. <laughs> I remember my husband saying once like, gosh, where did my wife go? And it's, and you know, when you, you don't know something about yourself until someone else points it out and someone you really care about who's really close to you, it's pretty mortifying, right? <laughs> what do you mean? Where'd your wife go? I'm right here. And you know, you want to be but then I realized it and I thought, wow, okay, that's, that's a problem. We need to deal with that because God didn't let Sarah stay in her bitterness. So that story, um, the angel of the Lord is there and he says there, he says, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And it's funny because like he had heard her, what was going on in her heart. And so I really felt him saying, I hear what's going on in your heart. You've got bitterness. You're laughing at me. You don't believe that I'm capable of bringing you joy. It was such a good eye opener. So many times, you know, in order to to deal with a problem, we have to be made aware of it first. And so I was made aware, hey, man, you're bitter. It's weird, you know, after suffering a loss, especially the loss, the kind of loss that I suffered, I I remember thinking before I ever lost her, I don't know what I'd, I don't know what I'd do if I lost a child. I mean, I would, I would cut myself, I would go on drugs, you know, like not even kidding. So I'm not surprised that I felt like, oh, I'll never have joy again. But that was the beginning was kind of those verses in the Bible just kind of waking me up. Hey, you have a bitter heart. That's what's going on right now. And it's pretty cool because I, um, during the time that I was sitting with those feelings and those thoughts and kind of writing the manuscript, it was so cool. It was like God showed me, hey, there's people all throughout history that have suffered worse than you. And let me show you their big picture. Let me show you their picture from the beginning to the end. And so like, that's kind of the privilege that we have of like seeing how things panned out for biblical characters and, and people in history, you see, okay, this was their beginning, middle and end. And all I can see right now is my beginning and middle. I don't see the end, but when, but when you step outside of history and you see how God can work it together, there's so much encouragement there. And so it's kind of the beginning of that change that I went from, you know, from that sorrow, that bitterness to having the freedom to laugh and that freedom to laugh um, without any bitterness at all. And so the book really chronicles that journey. I'll be back with the rest of the conversation right after this short break. Have you invested in conferences or workshops that left you empty handed? There was great content and you had great ideas about what to go do with it but no change actually happened. 
that's not okay. At Go Summit, we're committed to helping you take action. To do that, we add personalized coaching and customized marching orders alongside the inspiring speakers, amazing location, and fun networking events. Honestly, there's nothing quite like it. Register today before tickets sell out at fastermind.co forward slash Go Summit. A couple of things strike me as I'm hearing you share. One is that, and I remember early in your book, you make a, a liking, you say grief is like a bathing suit. It fits every person differently. And even as you're describing this process that you've gone through and even contrasting it with others, I've never experienced comparing grief as resourceful ever. You know, my grief, your grief, whoever's. And yet there's something that you're able to amplify and illuminate what's gone on for you without comparison, yet you're still honoring the grief of other people and how they're navigating it. That feels like the opening that you're creating for folks. And as you describe going from the kind of the bitter taste of it, and it sounds like over an extended period of time, you landed in a newer place. And how would you describe the sorrow on the other side of the bitterness? Hmm. That's such a good question. The sorrow on the other side of the bitterness. Because the sorrow, I think, will always be there. It just is not as consuming. I feel like when you get to the other side, there's this wide open door that says, yes, you can, this is part of you. You have experienced this loss, but it doesn't own you and it doesn't define you. And it would be doing Daisy a disservice to pull out from life. It would be doing God dishonor to pull out from life and, you know, of all the joyful things of life to stay in that place. And I, and I know that I, I've got several friends and, you know, acquaintances who have experienced heavy loss and there's this weird guilt feeling. One friend in particular, she lost her son around the time I lost my daughter and he was like 30 years old or something. So, she, you know, a grown up, but she feels guilty for laughing. She feels guilty for enjoying. And I think the end is I really got brought to a place where life is this big, beautiful, open door. And just because I have suffered loss, it doesn't shut that door. That door stays open. And I feel like God is inviting me through that door saying, hey, man, there's still so much to partake of. It's like this holistic thing. And and it's interesting because after you've suffered, you realize that the beauty you experience is way more beautiful than before you ever suffered. And the smells are, are sharper and the sights are, you know, there's this sharper, more beautiful edge to all the beauty that's available in life. And so I think I just feel like the sweet freedom of this big open door of saying, yes, I'm going to partake in everything life has for me. When you were talking earlier about your friend who, it sounded like uh, your friend who had, had a loss around the same time that you lost Daisy, that there was like this weird correlation or kind of connectedness to like, if I let the grief go, therefore I'm letting like I'm dishonoring, I'm letting the, something of the essence of my child go at the same time or the thing that I'm grieving at the same time. And and I see that dynamic manifest in a lot of people's lives. Like there's just a resistance to continuing on in the chronology 
of life and navigating life. And, and even what I love about your frame is I don't hear you putting a moral lens on the grieving process. Like there's not a right way or a wrong way to do it, but there's something about even saying that as you're describing your friend, or I think of things in my own life where I've just been resistant to, to see the, the process all the way through, I lose a little bit. There is, mm-hmm. It's not that it's wrong. It's just, it's not helpful. Is that a fair observation? from your experience? I think so. I think so. I think there's fear tied to it. I think like there's that fear of if I am not sad on a daily basis, that they cease to exist. You know, I think there's that if I set this sorrow aside to indulge in joy, then I'm doing their memory a disservice or no one's going to remember them anymore. You know, there's this weird fear. Like when you lose someone so close to you, it's the strangest thing on the planet because you want to call them. You want to, you know, I want to run upstairs and see Daisy sitting on her bed and playing with her stuffed animals, but you can't, you know? And so you feel like anything I can hang on to will make them magically appear. I mean, your mind plays tricks on you for years. Your mind plays tricks on you. It's the weirdest thing. It's tough, man. I mean, even when I drive past the cemetery where her body is buried, I don't really go there. I think I've been there two or three times in the last four years. I can't go there. I can't. It's just the weirdest thing for me. But my mother-in-law goes all the time. She goes and she keeps fresh flowers in there. And so everybody has this different thing but I do think that that's common. You know how I said everyone grieves differently, but I think there's that common fear of if I do this, I will lose them. They will slip out of my hands. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's never helpful to compare anything, but I just flashes in my own experience. I definitely can relate to like wanting to cling to something mm-hmm. as opposed to embracing. Like, I think that's one of the massive gifts of not just being part of a faith tradition, but in your case, like you're relating with a God that's very personal. That's w- what's striking. It's funny. Uh, we're recording this at the, just before Easter, you know, this is the season where just right up, like it's the day before Easter we're Saturday uh, in the, in the Jesus tradition. Uh, this is the, the lowest point, right? This is mm-hmm. the deepest grief. The, the un- unthinkable thing has happened. And if we hang out here and live here indefinitely, we're not, we're closed off to Sunday to what's coming, That's right. you know? And yeah. I think that is a uh, way beyond just the very familiar narrative is just a real practical reality that you've experienced in real life. And, mm-hmm. and I believe that, that the folks that get the chance to read this book, they're going to be given a gift. I know for me, Tammy and I, my wife, you graciously sent us a copy and we stared at it. We didn't want to read it. but i'm so glad we dove in because like all great things it took us on on a journey that reminded us of our own journey in different moments and also invited us into a real intimacy with you and and just even the way that you take people through the ending is just a delight it's a surprise it's a delight like even your story in trader joe's and i actually kind of want people to not even know it i want them to go read it i hope people have the courage to go and and take advantage of it because you really do with remarkable vulnerability and elegant language invite people into a story that everyone can relate to. And I think you've done a tremendous thing and a tremendous honoring of Daisy and just a gift to the rest of us who are are still trying to make sense of our own world. So thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you. That's so kind. So kind.
If folks want to, I, I guess if you don't, if y'all, <laughs> if y'all don't have a Wi-Fi signal, they can't really track you, <laughs> which is so beautiful. It's so awesome. <laughs> We're such hillbillies. I love it. I love it. But if people, so uh, and still, she laughs is the name of the book. Kate Merrick, thank you for this book, and they, folks can get it anywhere. Uh, it's all over the place now. And I guess this is my last question I have for you: is yes. when you find yourself. I know this happens because, you know, you guys have been tagged, right? Like you've gone through an experience and therefore when someone else is going through something similar, like, oh, I know you need to talk to Kate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you find yourself in those severe moments and you're having tea or something and you're trying to offer a gift to somebody in that space. Looking back, especially, what do you wish when you were in it and also as you're in that with others now, what advice would you give to a friend of a friend who's grieving? I would say, keep your mouth shut. I would say, keep your mouth shut. And I remember telling one of my friends, I mean, this was maybe three days, four days after Daisy died. I remember telling all I can say, okay, and this is going to sound so funny, but keep in mind, mother of young children, surfing family. So the movie, the penguin movie, Surf's Up. Yes. <laughs> the animated yes, movie. Yes, yes, yes. Well, in the beginning, Cody, brilliant movie, by the way, everyone should watch it. So hilarious. In the beginning, Cody Maverick says, this place sucks, bro. And I remember feeling like Cody in the beginning that I, all I could say was this sucks, bro. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all I wanted to hear from anyone else. Don't tell me God is good all the time. Don't tell me she's feeling better now. She's in heaven. Don't tell me where she is. Don't tell me the pain is over. Don't tell me anything. Just look at me and say, this sucks, bro. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I want to hear. And so that's my advice. If you know someone who's hurting, if you know someone who's grieving, don't try and fix them. They don't want to be fixed. They want to sit in ashes. They want to sit in ashes and talk about how it sucks. And that's okay. That is good and right. Don't rush anyone's grief process. Mm -hmm. And it's uncomfortable because we want everyone to be okay. I think we're Americans and that's our culture. Everything's good all the time. You know, we're kicking butt. We're taking names. Like everyone, we're all about victory and we're the best. We're the biggest. We're the best. And it's uncomfortable when someone is not doing well. Be uncomfortable. It's the best thing you can do is just say, yeah. Yeah, man, that sucks. <laughs> uh, that was so ineloquent. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you are a gift, Kate Merrick. I am so, so thankful. <laughs> Again, not getting into my own world, but I, I sure that resonates. That's just honest. And it's hilarious that you're laughing in the middle of it. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, thank you again. And again, friends, and still she laughs, Kate Merrick. Do you have a website? I'm a hillbilly with a website. I really (laughs) see you've got a teeny tiny website, little blog. It's called kmerrick.com. Okay. Because Kate Merrick was taken shockingly by like dog food or something (laughs) so dumb. Yes. kmerrick.com. That's where you can find me. And you're writing there now. I'm ready there now in little tiny bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, we are lucky to have it. Thank you, Kate. Thanks, James. This was episode five, season three of Converge, the business of creativity podcast. Converge podcast is brought to you by fastermind.co, where we help entrepreneurs go from knowing to doing. Get started free today by finding out your Fastermind underscore. Go to fastermind.co. 
Music for this episode provided by triplescoopmusic.com. What does your story sound like? This episode was mixed and produced by Podcast Fast Track.